Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends at Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana, and our friends at First Baptist Church in Arco, Idaho. We are so glad that you are joining us for our study of God's Word as we continue our series from the book of Judges. Now, as we work our way through Judges, we come to probably one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. Uh, one of the best known, and that's the story of Samson. We're going to have so much fun this week and next Sunday with this two parts uh, that we're going to study Samson. He's the last judge that's specifically talked about in the book of Judges. And four chapters, more than any other judge, is devoted to Samson. And remember, a judge is more like a military leader. In Samson's case, it's kind of like just a one-man warrior. He really doesn't lead an army at all. He just kind of does stuff on his own. Uh, Gideon had three chapters devoted to him, and so Pastor Eric uh, spent two weeks talking about Gideon, and I'm going to spend two weeks this Sunday and next Sunday talking about Samson, and then we'll finish up the book of Judges after that on the first Sunday in December, and then we'll move into uh, the Christmas season. So I'm going to spend two weeks on Samson, chapters 13 and 14 today, chapters 15 and 16 next Sunday. The title of today's study is When the Weak Become Strong, and next week the title is When the Strong Become Weak. Now when you think of Samson, you think of somebody really built and and chiseled and muscular and really jacked up. You probably think of somebody like me. That's the image that you have in your mind. Oh, it's just like Pastor Glenn. Uh, But he may not have been that way. He may have looked more ordinary uh, than, than that. And, and so the whole point is, is it was God's power. It wasn't his power, but it was God's strength and God's power uh, that made him as strong as he was. So let's pick it up now in verse 1 of chapter 13. Again, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the whole, that could be the title of, of the book of Judges. Again. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, This is interesting. Let's put up the cycle that we showed in the earlier part of the series. Remember we talked about the cycles you're going to see in Judges is first they sin. They forget about God, so they sin. Then it leads them to servitude, okay? Then they cry out to God in supplication. Then God brings salvation through one of these leaders, through one of these judges. And then there's silence or peace or blessing until they forget about God and it leads them into sin all over again. But remember we said at the beginning The spiral is downward. And what you find at the beginning, there were long periods of silence followed by a short period of servitude. But now it flips. Now the period of servitude is longer than the time of blessing. Last week we talked about Jephthah. And he ruled for only six years, and now they have 40 years of oppression at the hand of the Philistines. So now let's meet the Philistines. They are a sea people. Uh, They are kind of like the Vikings of the Mediterranean Sea, how the Vikings came down and invaded the British Isles. Well, they're like the Vikings of the Mediterranean. And so they come in from the sea, and they begin to establish a beachhead here in Palestine, uh, kind of opposite what we know is called the Salt Sea here, but what we would call the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's the Dead Sea. So opposite that, here they come in as these kind of pirates or seafaring, kind of like the Vikings, and begin to conquer territory. Now let's talk about the Philistines. A couple of things I want to say. First of all, they were extremely sophisticated. Their weaponry, their architecture, their culture, super the most advanced people in that area of their time. They were the first 
to work with iron. We talked about that. They were first to use iron in their military weapons. They were the first to use battle formations strategically in warfare. Nobody did that before the Philistines. In art and pottery and architecture, they were all very, very advanced. They were building two-story or multiple-story buildings and bridges at the same time that the Israelites were just hanging out in the fields with their sheep. So here's the Israelites, they're just kind of these nomadic people just hanging out in their pastures with their sheep at the same time that these sophisticated Philistines are building multi-story buildings and, and bridges. And so they were very much advanced over the Israelites. Number two, they were really depraved. Their whole civilization was built on piracy and conquest. Um, their parties were epic for their debauchery. They started this thing called a mishta. M-I-S-T-E-H, a mishta, and it's a word that literally means a week-long drinking feast. And they're the ones that invented it. It wasn't invented at UC Santa Barbara. It was invented uh, here with the Philistines. As a matter of fact, I looked up the five biggest party schools in California. Number one was UC Santa Barbara. Number two was USC. Chris Chacon, you know, now we know why you went to USC. It wasn't for their academics or their football team, right? How many USC grads do we have here? Right? So USC, okay, we got a bunch of them, okay. Number three on the list, anybody want to guess? It's the one I thought would be number one. San Diego State University is number three. Number four is Loyola Marymount, where Pastor Greg went. So it wasn't just for volleyball and academics that Pastor Greg went to school. And rounding out our top five is UCLA. Any UCLA grads here? Okay, they're, they're the top five. I guess I shouldn't mention USC and UCLA. It's a painful subject, 24 hours, or, or it's a joyful, it's a controversial subject, I should say. Now, archaeologists, when they excavate these Philistine cities, they find just tons of beer mugs and beer jugs and wine uh, chalices, just tons of them when they, when they excavate uh, these Philistine cities. They were also big into pork. They loved their pork. They would fill Israel's countryside with pigs. And remember, to the Jewish people, pigs are unclean. And they'd fill the, the landscape with pigs. They were unspeakably cruel. When the Philistines would capture a town, they would mutilate or remove the genitalia from the men while they were still living. They would torture them and then impale them on a pole uh, similar to crucifixion. So the Philistines were known for four Bs, buccaneering, beer, bacon, and barbarism. Now, God is going to do something about this. Uh, they represent, the Philistines really symbolize the enemies of God at their strongest, numerically, economically, militarily. What's the biggest enemy in your life right now? What, what is the toughest thing you're dealing with? What is, what is the thing that just is beating you down right now in your life? Well, that is symbolized by the Philistines. They represent, they symbolize the enemies of God at their strongest and at their cruelest. But now God's going to do something about it as he always does. Uh, verse 2, a certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites. Now, this is interesting. This is the weakest and the smallest tribe of Israel. So the strongest man is going to come from the weakest tribe. That's just the way God does things. He had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now, there are four details. Let's just leave that up there right now. There are four details from these two verses that reveal an important truth 
about our salvation. Number one, what's missing between verse 1 and verse 2? Remember the little cycle? Um, there's sin, and then there's servitude, and then there's supplication. That's what's missing. They are far, so far gone, and you kind of see it spiral downward. Things get worse and worse uh, there in the, in, in the book of Judges. They, they are so far from God that they don't even think to cry out to God. They don't, they don't even seek God, but he seeks them. Even when they're not seeking him, they're seeking God. Uh, this is the first time that a judge is promised before birth. In the past, God would just take somebody who's already living and uh, raise them up, like Gideon, uh, the pastor Eric preached on, or like Jephthah, or like Deborah. He'd, he'd raise up somebody who's already there. But in this case, he has to start from scratch and promise somebody who hasn't even been born yet. Number three, he's given, uh, the promise is given to a barren woman who's entering her old age where she can no longer bear children. Now, not being able to have children is such a painful thing today. I tell you, as a pastor, Kimberly and I, oh my goodness, it's, it's one of the hardest things when you walk with a young lady through that or a lady of any age and, or a couple uh, that's going through this. It's, it's, so, it's so hard for couples today. But it was just as painful for couples back then, but add to it something that is not as true today, it also meant economic devastation back then. So add in all the pain and heartbreak of what people go through today when they're unable to have children, and add on to that economic devastation because all their hope was in their children. See, today, our hope is in what degrees we have or what kind of job we have or where we work. But back then, they were an agricultural, agrarian society. And, and so for them, the more children you had, the more workers you had, and the more income you had. There were no Social Security, no 401Ks. Your only hope for the future was that your children would take care of you in your old age. Uh, even for the nation itself, having children was just essential. It was essential to their economy. And it was also uh, essential to their military health. How many sons you had born that could be drafted in the military was the only way nations could defend themselves. And so back then, women who had lots of children, they were like the rock stars of that society. Women that had a bunch of kids, they were like the superheroes. Old Testament scholar Walter Bruggeman writes, barrenness in ancient texts symbolized hopelessness. For without children, there was no foreseeable future for yourself, for your family, or for, or for, your, or for your people. So uh, the fourth detail here is that we are never told her name. Um, in other passages, you know the man's name, you know the women's name, like uh, you know Elizabeth, and uh, you know her, her and her husband, and, and of course Mary and Joseph and those. But we're given her husband's name, Manoah, but we're never told her name. And it's almost like the writer of Judges, who may have been Samuel, by the way, it's almost as if the writer of Judges is intentionally painting her as being obscure. She's simply called the woman. So here's the point of all this. God brings salvation to a people who are not crying out in repentance, who have no talents or gifts or righteousness to distinguish them from others, and a people with no hope and prospects in themselves. That's who God brings salvation to. I love this quote by J.D. Greer. He says, God doesn't love the lovely he makes lovely those he loves. He doesn't save the strong. He makes strong those he saves. 
He doesn't choose the righteous. He makes righteous those who chooses. Anybody want to say amen to that? Uh, Moses said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now here's the practical impact of this. If, think to yourself right now. If you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if God chose me when I was running away from him, he's not going to discard me when I stumble. If God chose you when you were running away from him, he's not going to discard you when you stumble. You will find out as you walk with Jesus that I'm not holding on to him nearly as tightly as he is holding on to me. And so when you get discouraged, and when Satan whispers in your ear, when you make a mistake or when you fall, how can he love you anymore? You're no good anymore. Give up. Uh, you, you have failed him. You respond, if he chose me when I was running away from him, he's not going to discard me when I stumble. What a tremendous hope that is as we live the Christian life and we get knocked down and we get back up again and we get knocked down and he's holding our hand and picking us up time and time again. Now verse 4. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now let's just keep that up there for, for, for just a moment. This is what's called a Nazarite vow, from the Hebrew meaning devoted or consecrated. And so he is to be consecrated to God. He is to be devoted to God. There are three parts of it. Number one, you couldn't cut your hair. Number two, you couldn't drink anything from the vine. So that meant wine, but it also meant, well, it's just grape juice. And all that was left is water and milk. They didn't have Coca-Cola back then or carbonated beverages. They just had, uh, so if you couldn't drink anything from the, the vine, it was all just water and milk. And number three, you couldn't touch any dead bodies of any kind, human or even an animal. Now, this Nazarite vow was meant to be temporary. I mean, kind of like today, so you might give up something for Lent, or you might fast and pray about something. When I, uh, at the beginning of the fall, I went up to Big Bear into a cabin and just all by myself and just spent a day not eating, fasting, and praying for you, my church family, and, and for our Kimberly and our family as well, and for our kids and grandkids. And so we do this temporarily. You do a temporary fast. You give up food for a day or two in order to focus in on prayer. And so the same way with the Nazarite vow, it was meant to be temporary. But for Samson, it was going to be permanent all through his life, even before he was born. That's why his mother had to keep the vow while she was pregnant with him. And so this was meant through Samson. You know how the judges are like foreshadowing. They're pictures of the ultimate judge, Jesus, who was to come later on. Uh, he becomes a symbol. The Nazarite vow is a symbol of how God's ultimate Savior one day would be set apart, holy, dedicated, consecrated, and sinless. And so this is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, this is an odd phrase. He will take the lead in delivering Israel. 
Okay, that's kind of weird. In most other translations, it literally means he will begin to save Israel. Okay, that's weird. So if he's going to begin it, who's going to complete it? Well, Samuel. You know, one interesting thing that I, in my study this week, I never really realized, you know, because when the books of the Bible follow each other, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, you think of them being like a century apart from each other. Do you know that Samuel and Samson may have been contemporaries of each other, that their, their lifespans may have overlapped with each other? And so maybe the prophet Samuel is the one who continued what he had begun. David, at least with regard to the Philistines, is the one that finished the work of dealing with the Philistines so that they no longer oppressed the people of God. But remember, Samson is a picture of a future judge. And so if he takes the lead, if he begins the freedom of God's people from their enemies, who is going to someday finish it? Who's going to hang on a cross someday and cry out, it is finished? Satan is defeated. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. He will take the lead in doing something that someday the ultimate judge, Jesus, will come and he will finish. Now let's skip to verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. He, they gave him. God didn't give him this name. She gave him the name. The husband gave him the name of Samson. Now we got trouble. Right off the bat. Because Samson is literally in the Hebrew a tribute to the sun god, S-U-N. And so here his parents compromise even in his name. And it's symbolic of the fact that Samson is going to live a life uh, filled, filled with compromise. There are four problems that are going to plague uh, Samson's life. And this is going to kind of set up next Sunday's message as well. We're going to drill deeper into this next Sunday. But let's set the table for next Sunday. Number one is compromise. Samson goes on to break all three parts of the Nazarite vow. As we're going to see in chapter 14, he touches a dead carcass of, of, of a lion. Uh, he goes to these mishtas. He goes to these week-long drinking parties. Um, and then next Sunday, we'll talk about the most famous way is when he allowed his hair to be cut. And so he is going to compromise and, and, and break all three of the parts of the Nazarite vow. Uh, Judges chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah, now get her for me. This needs a southern accent here. Get her for me, mom and dad. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Now, this isn't racism here. This is just, can't you find a girl that also worships the one true God like you rather than a Philistine girl that worships Dagon and all these other Baal and all these other gods that were around at that time? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines? Circumcision was the thing that set apart the, the nation of Israel. Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Now, it doesn't mean that it was right for Samson to do this. It was wrong. And yet God is able to take wrong decisions. God is able to take evil things that happen. God is not the author of those things. They happen in a fallen world. 
uh, because we chose to go our own way and because people choose to go their own way. Uh, but God is able to uh, uh, over, overrule that decision. He's able to take it, even the evil. He, he's not the author of evil, but once it happens, he's able to take it and use it for his good plan and his good purposes. Now, don't get me wrong. He always uses obedience better than disobedience. But he still is sovereign and is able to overrule disobedience, overrule evil in order to accomplish his purposes. Now, can I just take, this is like a parenthesis, can I just take a sidebar over here? Um, this past week, our church has been living through uh, just a great, great tragedy, uh, a great evil thing that was done to a young man from our church family. A Taylor Meyer, 27 years old, a wonderful young man. Grew up in our church. Uh, he was now living down in Hermosa Beach after he graduated from college in Colorado. His parents, part of our church family, um, just a, a wonderful family and a wonderful young man. And he was vacationing down in Mexico last week or a week ago Thursday uh, with some friends. And he was attacked by three men that were going to rob him and they stabbed him to death. And this has become national news. This has been a, a story that's gone a, a, across the nation. And, 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 the, and we have just sat in awe at how this evil, okay, this, this is an evil thing that was done to him. But how God, through Chris and Krista, his parents, how they, it's just, it's supernatural to watch. It's, it's incomprehensible in their grief how they have used this to have a national platform to point people to Jesus. And every time they've been interviewed by radio or television across Southern California or nationally, they've been interviewed nationally as well, they always pivot towards Jesus. Um, we heard just yesterday, Pastor Tomiko and me and, and the other pastors are here, Pastor Brian, Pastor Jay, uh, Chris and Chris stood here just yesterday with about 700 people here and another 1,000 watching online, so about 1,700 people. And Chris and Krista stood up here and they said, you know, we forgive the person that did this to our son. And, and, and we do want justice for him, but they said, you know what we want more than justice? We want every one of you to join him in heaven. That's what we want. I mean, just that's what we want most of all. Yeah, we want justice for our son, but way more important than that is for you to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's the most important thing. Out of great evil... God still takes that through their obedience and uses it to point attention to him and to our salvation. Verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approached the vineyards of Timnah. And in the Hebrew, it could carry with it the idea that Samson went into the vineyards to pick grapes. So that's he's already just like disobeying this left and right. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Now you say, oh, there are no lions in the Middle East. There's an error in the Bible. No, there were lions in the Middle East until about 100 years ago. They got hunted into extinction during the 1800s. But as early as the early 1900s, there were still lions, and there were certainly many, many lions uh, in uh, Palestine and in Israel uh, at, at, at this particular time. And so it comes roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. That's a weird phrase, isn't it? 
I mean, was this a common thing that people did? Hey, come over to my house. We'll do some, we'll tear up some goats. Yeah. But, okay, maybe it's just me. There I am. But he told neither his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and, and he liked her. And so his life is characterized by um, compromise, uh, by being impulsive. As we're going to see, he was hungry for honey, and so he eats it even though it's out of a dead body, and it violates one of his Nazarite vow that his strength is connected to. Uh, he wants a woman, and so he gets her, even though she's a Philistine or a prostitute. He gets mad, he kills people. Do you know that every one of his feats of strength is connected with being personally insulted or angered? Now let's pick it up with verse 8. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, even though it's in a dead body, and ate it as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, a mista, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, the lion, something to eat, out of the strong, the lion, something sweet, or the honey. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father and mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? Hey, this guy needs to learn something about marriage right there. Okay. <laughs> you tell her, even though you don't tell your parents. She's number one now. She cried the whole seven days of the feast. What a fun bachelor party that was. <laughs> so on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now let's just hold, let's just hold it there, back at the other verse. Just Men, let me give you some advice right here, okay? From Pastor Glenn, the love doctor, okay? Never refer to your wife or your girlfriend as your heifer, okay? Not, not a good idea right there. And never talk about somebody plowing with your heifer, all right? Verse 19. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. And that sets up our story uh, for next Sunday. He was impulsive. And you think, who would do that? What, what guy would risk their strength for a little taste of honey? 
And then I realized, guys do that every day. Guys who throw away their marriage for a taste of porn. College guys who never take seriously the lordship of Jesus because it would mean giving up sexual freedom in college. Guys do it all the time. Gals do it all the time. Why would we be willing to trade a vibrant relationship with God for the slightest bit of a taste of honey? He was impulsive as well as compromising. Number three, entitlement. I deserve that honey. I'm awesome. I'll take it. Get it for me. Number four is pride. Everything in Samson's life is all about him. All about him. You read through these four chapters and note how many times you see Samson uses the word I. I, 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 I. He leverages the gift of strength that God gives to him not to be a blessing to other people, not to be a blessing to God, not to fulfill God's plan and purpose for his life, but for his purposes, his comfort, his reputation, satisfying his rage rage attacks. That's what he uses it for, for I rather than for God's purposes. Now these are the four greatest threats to what God wants to do in your life. Compromise, being impulsive, living with a sense of entitlement, and walking in pride. And next Sunday, we're gonna drill deeper uh, into those things as we continue the story of Samson. But let's finish up now and see how Samson foreshadows the future. Tim Keller writes this. Samson is the last judge in this book, the last great hope for Israel. We wait to see how he will rescue and rule God's people in obedience to God And in almost every way, we will find ourselves disappointed. Now, here's the good news. Jesus will complete what Samson begins. Back to that verse, and let's use the more common translation here, uh, the next verse. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Let's have the praise band come up as I kind of wrap things up here. Uh, Samson is a picture in the Old Testament of Jesus. And notice all the parallels, the things that are the same, the things that are different. They're both promised before birth. Uh, Both of their births um, were miraculous. Uh, Jesus was a virgin birth, but, you know, almost as miraculous was the birth of Samson. There's one huge difference between Jesus' birth and Samson's birth. The birth of Samson brought great joy. But the birth of Jesus brought shame because in the little village of Nazareth, he was seen as being born out of wedlock. Uh, Samson's birth brought celebration and honor. Jesus was born into poverty and and into shame. And you say, why did it have to be that way? Well, because the real Savior would have to enter into our shame, take our shame on us, and die on the cross for our shame. Samson was a Nazarite a respected religious man. Jesus was a Nazarene, a despised cultural outcast. Uh, Samson and Jesus, uh, a lot is told about their birth, but very little about their childhoods. But here's where Jesus is the true and better Savior who will succeed in every place where Samson fails. Unlike Samson, Jesus never compromised. Satan dragged him out in the wilderness for 40 days and tempted him in every possible way. And Jesus never compromised because he was thinking of you and me. His love for you and me caused him never to compromise. 
He was not controlled by his impulses. He was controlled by God's will. He was not entitled and proud, but he took on the role of a servant and submitted himself to the humiliation of the cross. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he did not consider being God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be entitled to. He released his entitlement, instead took on the role of a servant, even to the point of dying on the cross. And here's the good news. He'll change us from the inside out. When we open our hearts and receive him, we'll be saved, we'll be cleansed of our sins, we'll be on our way to heaven. But just as important, we will be empowered to live this life beyond just a Samson-like existence. How many of you in any way can identify with Samson? I can. I got both my hands up. Oh, yeah. Glenn is impulsive. Glenn tends to compromise. Glenn feels entitled sometimes. Uh, Glenn is prideful. And yet here's the beautiful thing. When we open up our hearts and receive him, Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so he'll change us from the inside out. Instead of saying, I want it, I gotta have it, get it for me. You'll say, I want God and his will for my life more than anything else. Instead of saying, I deserve it, I'm entitled to a comfortable uh, life with all kinds of good stuff. Instead of saying, I deserve it, I'll say, you know what? The only thing I really deserve is separation from God and eternity in hell. And when he rescues me from that, I will be so overcome by gratitude and thanksgiving that I will joyfully submit to his lordship and follow him. It will not seem like a burden. It will seem like a joy because I'm so grateful that I didn't get what I deserved. And then instead of saying my abilities are all about me, my comfort, my reputation, the benefit of my life. I'll say, Jesus, it's all about you. Everything you've given me, the strength, every gift of life, my talents, my gifts. Jesus, Jesus, it's all about you. And all God's family said,